Today's reading is from Proverbs 3, 1 through 18. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make, your, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her." Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Good morning. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the wisdom that's in your word, for the, the power of your spirit that loves to apply your word to our lives. And I know that lives could change today, Lord. I know that big things could happen today. I know, Lord, that you could free us from the chains of the love of money today and free us up to the love of the worship of God, the service of God, the honor of God, the exaltation of God, the superior valuation of God. Lord, you could free us from a thousand trials and keep us safe in the way today. And I pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would do just that. Lord, change our lives, transform our hearts. Help us to think well about our relationship to wealth today and to honor you with everything that is in our possession and control. I pray this, Lord, with joy. I pray this with anticipation. And I thank you for what you'll do. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, Pastor Kevin has been preaching so well to us over the last four weeks. I'm not really sure you need me uh, to be a preacher. I've really, really been benefiting from Kevin's ministry to us, and I mean that. I don't like the spirit of flattery. I don't think that that's a godly spirit, so I'm genuinely exhorting our brother here. I have just benefited so much from his teaching, and Kevin, I just want to thank you for all the work that you put in over the last month. It takes a lot to preach, and so I'm very grateful for that. He has been teaching us over the last few weeks well that wisdom is the skill of applying the knowledge of God to all of life. And that is really a good definition. 
Often when we think of wisdom, we think about people who can say wise things. But the Bible thinks about wisdom in a very different way. In the Bible, wisdom is the ability to apply the truth to real life, to know how to do that, and that does take skill. It takes growth. It's not really very natural to any of us. Wisdom is the ability to actually live by the things that we believe and not just to profess the things that we believe. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, chapter 1, he said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And by that, he did not mean that we should walk in a way that we make ourselves worthy for God because that's impossible. What he did mean is that we would walk in such a way as that our lives would give honor to what God has already done for us in Christ. If we're worthy before God, it's because Christ has made us worthy. Amen? And so the Bible is telling us, live in such a way that your life screams that Christ has done it all for me. That takes skill, beloved, and that skill is called wisdom. It's the wisdom of knowing how to walk with Christ in the world day by day by day. I think this definition, as Pastor Kevin has been teaching us, forces us to to the conclusion that the book of Proverbs requires the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the truth of the matter is that no matter how much our hearts might want to do the right thing, we are incapable of walking in the way of wisdom over a long period of time. We are hurting, broken, wounded, messed up, screw up kind of people, and we will never be able to do the things that God is calling us to do, at least over a period of time. Like the Israelites, we might say in our hearts or out loud that all that the Lord has said we will do, and we might mean it, we might be sincere, we might hope for the best in that way, but the truth of the matter is, as I've said to you many times over the years, that we can do it always turns into ain't going to happen. Because we're just too wounded. We need Jesus, beloved. We need what he did at that cross for us. I was so moved by what Craig shared with us this morning. In order for us to move into the protection of Christ, Christ did the opposite of the safe thing. And now we have to do the opposite of the safe thing and embrace Christ no matter what the cost. And if we will embrace Christ, we have already walked into the world of wisdom because Christ is wisdom. Christ is not just wise. He is wisdom. Christ does not just give us wisdom. He is our wisdom. To cling to Christ is the beginning of wisdom. And so I want to begin this morning, not even by going to the subject, but by pleading with you to believe in Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you honestly, not arrogantly, if you don't know Jesus and embrace Jesus, you cannot be wise in this life. It is impossible. The only way to be wise is to cling to him who is wisdom. There's not another way. And so I urge you, I plead with you to believe in Jesus Christ and cling to him and learn the paths of wisdom for they are the paths of life, of joy, of fruitfulness, of every good thing in this life that will last beyond your death. And if you already believe, I urge you to join me in clinging to Christ all the more. When, once we believe in Jesus, that is a, a permanent transaction takes place and we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But I don't know about you all, but I still have a little bit of growing to do. There's a lot of sickness left in my heart. There's a lot of brokenness left in my heart. And I need to keep on believing and keep on clinging and keep on trusting and keep on hoping. And the more I do, the more he'll teach me the path of wisdom. I need to cling to the one who is wisdom. So if you already believe, just keep on believing, keep on clinging, walk in the more and more and more of First Thessalonians, 
Don't think that you're done. Don't let yourself get bored with Christ. There's more treasures to be had, so cling to him. And if you will do this, then the rest of this sermon will be helpful to you. And if you will not cling to Christ, everything that I'm going to say is just going to be a burden upon you that you cannot bear, that you cannot walk in. There's no way that any of us, including me, can do the things the Bible's urging us to do without the power of Christ. So believe. That is the main lesson for today. If you want to walk in the ways of wisdom, you have to cling to the one who is wisdom. Now, with the gospel hopefully clearly in our minds, the subject before us today is wealth. And the primary exhortation before us today is that we should honor the Lord with our wealth. Proverbs 3.9 is probably one of the better known verses in the Bible, but often it's not looked at in the larger context of chapter 3. So I had Matt read chapter 3 verses 1 through 18 because I actually think all those verses go together. In Proverbs, this isn't always true, especially in some of the later chapters. They're just sort of strings of Proverbs, and they're not necessarily contextually related to each other. At least I haven't been able to figure out the system. Maybe in God's mind there is some system of logic there. But I know in the earlier chapters of Proverbs, there is a rhyme and a reason to the order of the text. In chapter 3, you have to see verses 1 through 18 as a chunk. And so what I want to do today is walk you through that. I see six distinct sections in this part of chapter 3, and I just want to briefly walk us through the first few sections and show you how that relates to the command to honor God with our wealth. And then next week, we'll actually come back to this text as well and talk about the issue of discipline that's in verses 12 and 13. The first section of this chapter is in verses 1 through 2. And without reading it again, I just want to suggest to you that the, the exhortation of this section is to value godly teaching and to value heartfelt submission to that teaching. He is any, and I do mean the word value in the sense of valuate. Like, place a high value on godly teaching that comes to you through God's appointed teachers and then highly evaluate your heartfelt, willing, glad-hearted submission to the teaching of God. If you value this above many other things in your life, oh, you will walk in the ways of wisdom. The wisdom of God is eminently valuable and it's the only wisdom that will actually lead us in the paths of life that are truly life. So Solomon would have us be hearers of the words of wisdom, uh, feelers of the words of wisdom, people who are moved by wisdom and not just intellectually informed by wisdom and people who bend their will toward God's will so that we can walk in the ways of wisdom, which again leads me back to the truth that without Christ, that's impossible. But with Christ, all things are possible. With Christ, it's able, we are able to be persuaded to have feelings and to actually do the will of God. And I pray that we would evaluate this above many other things because it's a wise, wise investment in our life. If you'll look there, you'll see that the promise is that if we'll make this kind of investment, the Bible says that we will prolong our lives and we'll have the kind of peace that's truly peace. And I've thought a lot about that verse in the last few weeks. And I actually think the Bible is literally promising you that if you'll walk in the ways of God, you will live a longer life. I think it means it literally. Even secular people will tell you, scientists, I listened to a a study that was um, uh, summarized on NPR a couple months ago, and they were talking about the effect of anxiety in the lives of people, and they were saying that like smoking, anxiety will cut your life short. So even secular people know that if you try to work 
walk by your own wisdom, you're going to end up dying soon. And if you're a person like me before I came to Christ and you're deliberately walking in the ways of death, well, you're just inviting death into your life. And so there's just a practical common sense thing that the God who created this machine called our body that if we treat it in the way that he's called us to treat it and use this life for what he's called us to use it for, that he'll prolong our life. So there's just a bit of common sense to that. But I don't think that this verse is a promise that you're literally going to live a long life because some of us will die suffering for Christ. Our brothers and sisters in India right now are literally under the threat of persecution and death. Who knows what God will do for them? Some of them probably will die for the sake of the name. Some of us might be in a fatal accident that just came out of nowhere. We didn't expect it, perfectly healthy or whatever, and now dead. Some of us might fall ill, have a heart attack, who knows? This is not a literal promise that you're always going to be perfectly healthy and live a long life. It's just saying that, listen, there's fruitfulness in the ways of God. And if you die as a person walking in the ways of the wisdom of God, guess what? You will have actually lived while you were alive. There are people that live past 100 years and never lived while they were alive. If you walk in the ways of Christ and in the ways of wisdom, you will be filled with life. Your life will matter. Your life will be real. And your life will last forever because it's in Christ. It will prolong your life way beyond this earth. Way, way beyond this earth. So that's the first section. Value godly wisdom. Value heartfelt submission to the Lord. This is a great investment decision. Verses three through four. The exhortation there is to value the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. I think that means two things. Actually, it just says to value steadfast, faithful, uh, steadfast love and faithfulness. It doesn't say of the Lord, but I'm adding that because I think that's the first thing that this means. Above all things, we have to value the covenant-keeping God, the promise-keeping God who will not break his promises to us forever. And if we can come to see and be truly persuaded in our heads and in our hearts that the faithfulness of God is the foundation of life, beloved, we will begin to live a life that's worth living. We will live our lives in a way that bears fruit that will last And I don't know about you, but I don't want to spin my wheels my whole life and realize that when I'm on my deathbed, everything I did was a waste of time. There's different opinions probably about John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, but I love that title, Don't Waste Your Life. The best way to waste your life is to walk away from him who is wisdom. But if you will embrace the steadfast love and faithfulness of him who is wisdom, oh, you will begin to make much of your life. Valuate it. Above other things is, I think, what Solomon is calling us to do. And put your heart's investment in that place. The wise will do this. The fools will walk away from it. As you learn to value God's steadfast love toward you, I think the other thing this means is that the wise will become steadfast in their love as well. They don't give up easily, not mainly because they're tenacious in themselves, but because they're, they're, they have a heart to be like their father. The issue is that we receive from God and then God is so gracious that he molds us into his, the image of his character so that we become like him. He's steadfast in love, so are we. He's faithful, so are we. He doesn't give up, neither do we. He loves certain things, we love those things. He hates certain things, we hate those things. We become like our Father. We overflow with the gracious love of our Father. Like, like dearly loved children, we imitate our Daddy. We do what he does. 
when steadfast love and faithfulness throw, flow into us and through us like this, then the promise of verse 4 becomes ours. Look at that promise. It says, so, in other words, in this way, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and men. That's a promise. And it's the kind of favor that's truly favor. It's not flattery or favoritism. It's true favor. And it's not the kind of success that's fading success and, and sort of ephemeral success. It's real success. It's true success. It's God-exalting success. It's joy-producing success. It's everlasting success. If you will value what is on this earth probably more valuable than anything else except the very glory of God, that is the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord, then your life will be a great investment and you will succeed in the greatest sense of that. And so I think Solomon would plead with us to make a wise investment decision and to spend all of yourself for the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. Spend everything to get that treasure. I watched a brief video last night, a couple minutes long, about Bill Gates' worth ethic, especially when he was younger. And this guy was unbelievable how much he worked and just in the fact that he was like the Energizer Bunny. He just never got tired. And I saw this, this other guy, he said something about he was really frustrated with Bill Gates because he was a direct competitor and his competitor kept getting tired and Bill Gates just never got tired. But the problem is he spent his life, invested all that energy building a kingdom that will fade away, that will mean nothing when he dies. Nothing. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs said they were changing the world. They did not change the world. They shifted around the technology of the world but the world is just still in a mess. What the world needs is a true change, transformation. That comes from Christ. Bill Gates should have invested himself, spent himself for the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. And I still pray that he would do that because then his investment would last. And that's what I'm saying. Give everything you have to get this treasure. The steadfast love of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord. There's nothing greater than these things. And it's just flatly a wise investment decision of your time, your talent, your treasure. The third section of chapter 3 is in verses 5 through 8. And the exhortation here is to value the Lord's wisdom and ways above our own wisdom and ways. The exhortation is to understand in our hearts that God is God alone and we are not to understand that God's power and purposes and plans and resources are much greater than ours and those who are wise will choose to invest in the greater thing rather than the lesser thing. It's just common sense. It's exhorting us to understand that we were created to live for the glory of God and to enrich our souls not on fading riches but on true riches. It's encouraging us to realize that even if we're wise, we're not so wise as we think we are. And you know why? The people who are walking on this earth that are truly wise, in the sense that even God himself would look at that person and say, yes, that person is wise. That person is filled with wisdom. I'll tell you something. There are people like that in my life that have mentored me for years. I think they are truly wise. But I'll tell you something. Their wisdom is a borrowed wisdom. Their wisdom was not created, developed, nurtured by themselves. First of all, they are a created being and not the creator, right? Right? So everything that they have comes from another source. Second of all, any true wisdom that they've learned, they were taught by God. They didn't teach themselves. They didn't make it up. 
And third of all, they were taught by other people. Sometimes God used the, used the means of other people to teach them things. And sometimes people get to thinking they're so wise because they forgot who taught them what they know. They've come to think that they came up with this stuff. And I will tell you, I've been tempted at times to think, wow, that was a really wise thing that I just thought, that I just wrote, that I just preached, that I just said. It's a sentence I'd never heard, a thought I'd never heard anybody teach before. And then I'm reading a book that's 700, 800, 900 years old, and there somebody says the exact same sentence uh, a millennium before I was even born, right? Any wisdom that I acquire is not, I'm not responsible for it. So how can I value my wisdom above God's wisdom? God is the all-wise one. And beloved, it is just a, a wise investment decision to value his wisdom above ours. When his is infinite, ours is not infinite. His is everlasting, ours is not everlasting. So value the wisdom and the ways of the Lord above our own ways. We are as beholden to God for our wisdom as we are for the heart in us that's beating and the breath that we are breathing today. If we would be wise, we would turn our eyes toward God. You'll see that this sentence in there, to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And if you pay attention to the context, the evil that's being talked about is the evil of self-dependence. And yes, that is evil. Depending on yourself is evil. Usually when we think of evil, we think of heinous stuff, murder, rape, whatever it is. But God says, and he probably would say that the greatest evil is self-exaltation because all these other evils come from that anyway. Pride is another word for it. It's horribly evil. When you demote the great God of the universe and exalt yourself to be your own God, you are committing a horrible kind of idolatry. And it's evil. So wisdom would say, turn away from you, yourself, a lesser God, and turn your heart toward the real God. Invest yourself in the one who is infinitely wise and value his wisdom alone. And you'll see there that the promise is that if we do these things, the Bible says that we will receive healing in our flesh and refreshment to our bones. Now again, you have to read sentences like that in the context of the whole book and then of the whole Bible. And I do not think that that is a literal promise that everybody will, will be healthy and nobody will ever get sick in the life of the church. We are not a health-wealth church because I just don't think it's biblical. If it was biblical, I would teach that. But I don't think it's biblical. But this is a promise that if you walk in the ways of the Lord, it's like it's a metaphor that he's using. It will be healing and refreshment to your soul, to the bones of your soul, if you will. It's a metaphor. He's saying that it will be the drink of real life for you, no, ma- no matter what happens to your physical body. I could give you so many examples. A bunch of them are flooding into my mind right now, but let me just talk about the Apostle Paul. Do you remember? He had a physical ailment. Most scholars think he was going blind. And if you think about Paul's life, he was traveling the world and preaching the gospel everywhere. He's writing the New Testament. He's reading. He's studying. He needs his eyeballs. This is a big deal that the Apostle Paul's losing his sight. It's no small thing. It would be a big thing for any of us, but if you in large part made a living with your eyeballs, it would be big, especially when your whole vocation was about the gospel in the world. So he pleads with the Lord, pleads with the Lord, pleads with the Lord three times. Please, Lord, take this from me. And what did the Lord say to him? The Lord said no. Why? Because, Paul, my grace is enough for you. My grace is enough. Guess what? Sometimes God will cause us to have physical deformities so that we realize his grace is more important than health. 
so that we'll realize that there are greater treasures than the health that we enjoy inside of our bodies. And then he said to Paul, Paul, my strength is perfected through your weakness. If you're so strong, then people might come to make much of you. But when I use weak people, then everybody knows God is doing something and not me. So I do not think Proverbs is saying everybody's always going to be healthy, perfectly fit, and all of that stuff. But I do think it's saying that if you walk in the wisdom and ways of the Lord, true refreshment will belong to you. You will drink of the river of life, and that life will endure forever. And I just want to encourage you again to search your heart and realize this is a wise investment decision. When we talk about investments, we usually think about money, but, when, but the truth is that it's about time, talent, treasure. It's our whole life that we're investing. And where you need to start is investing in the great big things of God. And his wisdom and ways are worth betting everything on. Everything. This brings us to the fourth section, the main focus for today in verses 9 through 10. But I hope you can see this has all been about valuation, all of it. Now we get to verse 9, and the exhortation is to honor the Lord with our wealth. So having learned to value that which is truly valuable, or at least being on that road, now I think that the wisdom of God is saying, devote your earthly valuables to the Lord and use them for the glory of his name. Show with your earthly valuables that God is supremely valuable above your valuables. Glorify God with your wealth. Now I use the word glorify here because the Hebrew word for honor in verse 9 is the word kabod. Maybe some of you have heard that word before. It literally means to be weighty. And it's most often translated glorify or glory. So if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you might remember the book called The Weight of Glory. And he took that title from this word. It's a sort of a weightiness. And the idea is that God is a weighty person. Not in, not in his mass, you know, it's not as though he's overweight. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in his preeminence, his prominence, his importance, who he is as a being, he is the heaviest one in existence. He is greatly honorable, greatly glorious. That's the point of this. And the exhortation is glorify, magnify, exalt the Lord with your wealth. Show with your use of wealth that God is more important than your wealth that he's more valuable than your wealth. And that's true if you have $1 or $100 billion. The amount doesn't really matter. The exhortation is the same. So the call here is to glorify God with our wealth. And so let me just quickly define wealth, and I'll talk about three different ways that we can use our wealth to worship the Lord, to glorify him, to honor him. The word wealth in verse 9 means exactly what you would think it means. It's talking about material possessions. You all know that in English, it's true, and it's also true in Hebrew, that the word wealth can also be used to talk about a number of other things that are also valuable, but in this context, I'm convinced that he's talking about literal material possessions. And one of the reasons I think that is because at the end of verse 9, he uses this word produce. And produce, as you probably would expect, means the fruit of the land, This makes perfect sense because Solomon was writing the Proverbs into a farming culture. And a lot of these people, it wasn't just that he was using a farming metaphor. They literally brought food to the temple as their offering. I was just in India again for a couple of weeks and people did that there too at worship service. They brought rupees to put in the plate and they also brought food and they offered food and rupees as their offering because they're farmers. 
So even in Proverbs and in the rest of the Old Testament, this word produce also gets used to basically mean income or revenue. So the way we ought to understand this is honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your revenue, all of your income. Everything that's coming in, its main purpose is to glorify God. This is a thoughtful thing that I'm saying to you. I haven't just come to that quickly. So please believe me, that's what is on the table when we talk about wealth. So what does it look like to use all of our income, all of our revenue, all of our wealth for the glory of God? How do we do that? I have three answers. First of all, to worship the Lord with our wealth means that we value him above our wealth in truth, not just in theory. To worship him is to show the superior honor of him through our wealth. It means to give him the supreme honor over the one thing in life that probably competes with the affections of our heart more than anything else. Last Wednesday at our community group, David Gunderson pointed me to Luke twelve fifteen, And there it says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And I think the Lord put it that way because we're tempted to think that our life does consist in our possessions. Even if we're persuaded in our minds, we're tempted to live in such a way that we're trusting in our wealth rather than the Lord. And so the Lord made it even more explicit. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. You know the verses. No one can serve what? Two masters, right? Because you're either going to love the one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to the one, despise the other, but you can't serve two masters. And then he said what he was talking about. He said, you cannot serve God and money. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things Jesus could have juxtaposed against the service and worship of God, he chose the subject of money. And in fact, he talks about money more than he talks about anything else, even hell in the Bible. He's very concerned because I think he knows more than any of us know that wealth competes with God to be our God like nothing else in this life. And we have to face this down. We really have to think about it. To worship God with our wealth is to show the supreme value of God through the use of our wealth. It seems to me that wealth tempts us to worship two related but distinct false gods. The first thing that I think wealth tempts us to worship is itself. It tempts us to believe that our provision and our quote-unquote security is in our wealth and not in the Lord. Many of us are intellectually persuaded about God, but we're really banking on that retirement account that we have. We're really banking on the house that we have that we can sell when we get old. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise and say things like that. I'm just saying if you're trusting in your retirement account, you've got a worship issue. You cannot trust in your wealth. I hope to God you didn't miss the lesson of 2008, 9, and 10. Don't you understand? This powerful economic system could crumble in a second. The most powerful people in the world said that we were that close to losing everything. And I've got to be honest with you, I have no idea what that means. When they talk about losing money, I'm like, well, what are you talking about losing money? The money went somewhere. Somebody's got it. Bill Gates looks like he's got a little bit of money. Warren Buffett, I don't know what they're talking about. But what I do know is that we came close to collapse. I remember when I was growing up and listening to my dad talk about the Great Depression, and I thought to myself, because of the FDIC and all this stuff, that could never happen again. Well, I was wrong. There's no way we can trust in our wealth. And I think wealth tempts us to trust in wealth. We need to guard our hearts, beloved. This is a worship issue. 
The second thing wealth tempts us to worship is guess who? Ourselves. The more people accumulate wealth, guess what they also accumulate? They accumulate power and control. They accumulate influence. There's a couple Proverbs that talk about this, but we all know that it's true. Rich people have lots of friends, it says. (laughs) Or at least seeming friends. Right now, maybe you don't have a lot of money. If all of a sudden you came into two million bucks, I promise you a bunch of people would be contacting you just to say hello. Why do you think so many lottery winners are in bankruptcy and their families are destroyed? It's because all of a sudden people who didn't want anything to do with them come out of the woodworks and want all their money. When you get a lot of money, all of a sudden you get a lot of friends, but those friends want what you want, what you have. And and because they want what you have, you begin to have more influence in their lives. You might even have more control in their lives. And another thing that happens is the more and more you accumulate wealth, you can start buying all kinds of stuff, pretty much anything you want. And if you get wealthy enough, you can buy even intangible things like justice or really injustice. You have enough money, you can get away with murder. No problem. That's a real temptation for the person who has money because they begin to believe the press. They begin to believe that they're really something. They begin to believe that they're more valuable than other people in their life because they have more stuff. They begin to think that they're wise, that people should be listening to them, writing books about them, paying them for interviews. They think they're really something. They're worshiping themselves. To me, the most uh, graphic example of this in our generation is Donald Trump. This guy is unabashedly evangelistic about people worshiping his name. He calls it the Trump brand, but it's an idol is what it is. And he's just an example of what happens to every one of us. Wealth tends to make us make gods of ourselves. And beloved, this is an extremely great danger. Do you understand when Jesus said, you can't worship God and money? He was saying, if you give your life to money, you're heading to hell. The stakes are extremely high. Money is an impotent God, beloved. It might give the appearance of being able to take care of you, but it cannot. It will fail you. It is a helpful tool, but it is a horrible God. I don't care how much money you amass, you will never be able to fill up the hole in your heart with your money. And you will never be able to pay your debt with God and men, ever. You remember, some of you probably have heard of when Howard Hughes, a billionaire, was in, in, interviewed, and somebody asked him, Howard, how much is enough? And you remember his answer? He said, just a little more. (laughs) Just a little more. He's got billions of dollars. He has enough money to just live for lifetimes, plural. And it's not enough. Just a little more. Why? Because money is incapable of filling the hole that's in our hearts. It is an impotent God, a helpful tool, a horrible God. And beloved, I'm telling you, the main issue with wealth is a worship issue. It's not primarily a management issue. It is primarily a worship issue. And I want to encourage you. And I'm encouraging myself. I've been doing this for weeks. I've known that I was going to preach this for weeks. Searching my heart for weeks to settle the worship issue. Who am I really trusting in? Who is my God? And if I believe that Jesus is my God, well, then who is my functional God? Really? I mean, really? Deep inside me. What do my habits tell me about my heart? and what I'm trusting in. I don't have a bunch of advice and judgment for you. That's not my place. I just want to say to you, search your heart and settle the worship issue. Do not honor yourselves with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth. 
Honor him with all of your wealth. The first and most important thing we have to do is settle the issue of who is our God. Big time. It's so, so, so big that I hardly know how to emphasize it well enough. The second thing that, that it means to worship God with our wealth, according to the last part of chapter 3, verse 9, is that we give the first portion of all of our income to the Lord. We devote to him a part of our wealth as a way of saying, Lord, you are more important than my wealth, and I'm not trusting in my wealth, I'm trusting in you. Beloved, God does not need our money. He has a few things. And everything we have was borrowed from him and we're only giving back to him what he gave to us. He created the whole universe with nothing more than words. He doesn't need our money. And so the issue of giving our money to the Lord, you know what it really is? It's not a fundraising issue. It's a faith-raising issue. It's a matter of saying, Lord, in my mind I'm persuaded and in my heart I trust you and so I'm going to let go of the thing that my heart might be tempted to have security in so that you can prove yourself to me and build my faith. And the Bible promises us that if we will trust the Lord in this, that the Lord will bless us and bless us greatly. He will help us. He will show himself to be Uh, worthy of our trust. He will show himself to be faithful when we put our faith in him. He will show himself to be God. It is not a fundraising issue, beloved. It is a faith-raising issue. So wealth has the tendency to cause us to make a God of itself or of ourselves, and there's great danger in this. But in tithing and giving a portion of our income to the Lord, the Lord is mainly giving us a way to turn that tide around and say, Lord, you actually come first. I do not come first. My wealth does not come first. Nothing that I have comes first. You come first and you alone. Malachi 2.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Beloved, that is a promise from God. He's saying, trust me and I'm gonna provide for you. He's not saying you're gonna get filthy rich. This is not a get rich scheme. This is something a lot more important than getting rich. This is a trust me scheme and I will show myself to be faithful to you kind of scheme. Like I said, it's a faith raising issue, not a fundraising issue. Third thing, to worship the Lord with our wealth means that we manage 100% of our wealth, not 10, but 100% of our wealth as stewards and not as owners. We are stewards, we are not owners. God actually owns all of our wealth, not just 10% or how much ever we give. The idea of personal ownership of wealth, beloved, is actually a fantasy. It's not a reality. And I'm not talking about politics here. Some of you are very sensitive to communism and politics and all that. I have a degree in sociology. I've read a lot of Karl Marx's stuff, and I'm thoroughly unpersuaded by communism. I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about a spiritual issue. None of us owns anything that we think that we own. That's the truth of the matter. And this is simple logic. God created everything, and therefore, by right of creation, he is the owner of everything. He is the rightful owner. He has the title and deed to everything. 
So what he does is he grants us part of his wealth so that we might steward it for his glory, for the good of others, and for the joy of our souls. And when we come to die, beloved, we will lose possession and control of everything that was in our possession and control because it never actually belonged to us in the first place. Death is the great teacher that wealth does not belong to us, but it belongs to the Lord. Indeed, we owe our wealth to God in the same way that we owe our beating heart and our very breath to God. He is the Lord, and therefore, we are always stewards and not owners. Now, you may be hearing that word and believing the words that I'm speaking, but are you persuaded deep in your heart? Do you think of yourself like a steward of somebody else's wealth, or do you think of yourself as the owner of your car, your house, your retirement account, whatever you own? I I plead with you to see that God owns everything you have, and he calls you to worship him with everything you have. He calls on you to steward your wealth in a way that magnifies the superior worth of God. So again, the use of our wealth is mainly a worship issue. We use our wealth to magnify the name of God. And as we do that, he uses it in plenty of other ways because he's really, really gracious, but mainly he's using it to show his superior worth to us and to other people as well. I was driving down the road the other day, making my way through all that mess down in Rogers and all that construction, and I was thinking about this stuff, and I realized that this particular point, like how I use 100% of my wealth, what's in my possession, is a really good indicator of where my heart is at toward the Lord, how I actually use it. So what I mean is that I'm, I'm persuaded that the Lord is God. I'm persuaded. I've given my life to him. He can do anything he wants with me. He can send me to India to die or send me here to be comfortable and live. Whatever he wants, he's got it. I'm persuaded that there's no hope in money. I've had seasons in my life where I tried to hope in money. didn't work out so well. I don't hope in money. But you know the truth of it is? When I think about how I spend my money, there's a part of my money, not all of it, but there's a part of it that I'm basically motivated to use it to fulfill my desires and not fulfill God's purposes. I'm, I'm honoring myself with my money more than honoring the Lord with my money. And I just had to see that and confess it. It's like a, it's like a mirror or, or a window into my heart that helps me to see that my desires are still a little too big and God's desires are a little too small in my heart. The use of money is a way of exposing the heart is what I'm trying to say. Now, of course, the Lord does give us all things to enjoy. That's 1 Timothy 6.17. God richly provides everything to enjoy. And I praise God for that. I pray that we would enjoy what God provides. But I'll tell you, as Americans, we really know how to abuse that verse. We know how to rip it out of context and use it to justify all kinds of things that I'm not saying will send us to hell, but might not be perfectly pleasing to our Father. So let me just read for you. In fact, please keep your finger on Proverbs, but let's turn to 1 Timothy 6. I just want to read for you about 10 verses here. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. We are stewards and not owners. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Oh, that that would capture our hearts. But those who desire to be rich, not those who are rich, but those who desire to be rich, who love money, who crave money, who pursue money, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this desire, this worship, 
That some have wandered away from the faith really to serve the God of money and pierce themselves with many pangs. So now I'm going to skip down to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. In other words, not to think too much of themselves and to make a lot of that power and control and all that stuff. Nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So that sentence comes in the context of saying, don't worship money. Worship God. Free your heart from the love of money. And then, of course, enjoy what God provides. Of course. But watch it. Because your enjoyment of things are going to be really tempting for you. So be careful. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Beloved, where our treasure is, there our heart's going to be also. And this is not a matter of how much treasure we have in our possession. I know some very rich people that are completely free from the love of money. I met a guy once who won a million dollar prize from a worldwide foundation, a million dollar check that they gave to this guy. He didn't take a penny of it. He invested the whole thing in a, in a movement to inspire fasting and prayer around the world to pray for revival around the world. There's a man who was wealthy and free from the love of money. Praise God. I've known poor people at times. I've been the poor person who absolutely craved money and hoped in money. So this is not about how much money you have or how much money you don't have. It's about the disposition of your heart toward money. And it's about searching your heart to ensure that your real desire, your real deep desire is to honor Jesus with your money and not just to fulfill your own desires. The use of our money is a mirror into our heart and it will help us to see what we're really worshiping. So I encourage you with everything in me to search your heart about how you're managing your wealth. Now if you look at Proverbs 3.10, just turn back there, just have a few more things to say and we'll close. The promise accompanying this commandment is that our barns will be filled and our vats will be bursting with wine. This is not a promise that we're all going to be rich. This is a promise that God will provide enough. What he's saying is, if you'll be a giver, I'll give you something to give. You will always have something to give. I was just in India among very poor people, and it amazed me the joy that they had in giving. Some of them gave to me. They're taking me to the airport, and these people who are so poor handed me money to bless me on my travel journey so that I could get this or that on my way. I'm like, what in the world? I am not worthy of this. The heart, the heart to give is, is a God-given heart. And if you have that heart, the Lord will always provide you with something to give. I think that's what this promise is about. The Lord will meet your needs, not always your wants, but he will meet your needs. Beloved, that's a promise, not a suggestion, a promise. This brings us now to the fifth section of chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. The exhortation there, again, is to value God's discipline rather than to despise it. We're going to spend our whole sermon next week talking about that, so I'm not going to say much about it, but I just want to point out to you right now that that exhortation to value discipline comes in the midst of a conversation about money. It's not only about money, but those verses are about money. God will often use money either blessing or poverty, to teach us about things that are more valuable than money. The discipline of the Lord often comes through financial struggles. 
And we'll look at that more next time. But the, in the flow of thought, what Solomon is saying is, I want you to value God's discipline more than your wealth because it's, it's actually worth more than your wealth. And then finally, the reason I, I know that this is connected to the conversation of wealth is because look at verses 13 to 16, to 18. They're about wealth. It's a conclusion to this section. And the conclusion is what I've already said a few times, but he just makes it again. Value that which is truly valuable. And in this way, you will receive the kind of riches and honor that endure forever and ever and ever. And we don't have time to look at this, but I want to encourage you on your own to look carefully at Proverbs chapter 8, starting in verse 17. I really would encourage you to write that down and look at it. Because there in in 8.17 and following, Proverbs defines what it means by wealth. And, and that definition becomes very important because everywhere the book of Proverbs promises us that we will prosper, prosper, it has that kind of wealth in mind. So I'm hoping to get a few minutes next week to look at that, but I really want to urge you to look at chapter 8, verses 17 through 21 on your own. And the idea is value what is truly valuable and spend yourself to get what is truly, truly, truly valuable. So again, The use of wealth is a mirror into the true condition of our hearts before the Lord, and I want to encourage all of us to think carefully about how we're managing our wealth. Are we doing this for the glory of God? And if we are, we should give thanks to God because it's totally owing to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And if you are not using your wealth to glorify God, I'm calling upon you to repent today. Make the Lord your true God, your functional God, and use everything you can for the glory of his name. He will forgive you, he will lead you, he will guide you, he will empower you, but he calls upon you to repent for the glory of his name and the joy of your own soul. So may the Lord now, may he free us from the love of money and free us up to the freedom, the joy, the love of worship. Let's pray now that he would help us. God, I thank you so much for the piercing wisdom of your word and for the power of your spirit that applies your word. And now I'm simply asking you, Lord, please, I am begging of you, please come near to us and help us apply these things so that we don't make a mockery of your word. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, I trust you for this and I thank you for what you'll do. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray.